Uh, I live here in this neighborhood. Uh, I love Denver. There's a lot of things I love about Denver. Um, you know, but one of the things I really love about Denver is not just how unique Denver is, but like what a safe place it is for uh, unique people. And uh, I don't know, like I know some of you are Colorado natives and you resent people like me who are transplants into the city and you have bumper stickers on your car that make me feel even worse about my decision to move here. And uh, I, I just like, maybe it'll make you feel a little more empathetic for people like me who moved here to let you know that people like me who moved, I, I kind of live in the South. I wasn't culturally South, but geographically South. People who moved from the South, people who moved from the Midwest, um, a lot of us were kind of too weird to stay in the places that we were from. Um, you know, you just like, like you look at this beard, like I cannot be gainfully employed in the South with this beard. They would make me shave this thing off instantly, and that's a deal breaker for me. So I moved to Denver, where I show up, and I'm like, these are my people. You know, uh, and, and a lot of you were the exact same way. You moved here, and it's a safe place to be unique. And you know, I just thinking about our church. Like, as you come into our church, there is a two-story mural of two chickens fighting one another. If you've seen another church that has that at their entrance, uh, I will give you a dollar. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we didn't paint it, but it's just there. It's part of being in a highly artistic, individualistic neighborhood, and we love it. Now, I was thinking a little bit about this, uh, the degree to which, uh, in spite of us living in one of the most individualistic, uh, unique neighborhoods and one of the most individualistic, unique cities in the entire world, still kind of how, si- how similar we all are. Uh, and I was thinking about this, like, after we get out, uh, if you go down Larimer Street, this is Larimer Street right here, which is kind of the, it's kind of the main thoroughfare now of, of this neighborhood, Rhino. And you go down here, you know, it's this highly artistic, unique, individualistic neighborhood. But the reality is, is like, all the men are dressed the same, right? Like, we all kind of look like this. We wear flannel and have beards, and we look like we're at a lumberjack convention, and we're like, hey, look how unique we are. And it's like, we all dress the same. Uh, the women largely dress the same as well. Even kind of like the uber countercultural hipster who prides themselves in being like, very different. They all dress the same in their protests of like people all dressing the same. And so even in a neighborhood as kind of unique as our own, it's actually fairly rare to encounter someone or something that's actually unique. And and I think that's the reason why when we do, on the very, very rare occasions that we do encounter something that's truly unique, it actually moves us in a very profound sense. Um, This is kind of a change in categories, but my favorite YouTube clip over the last year uh, was of the artist uh, Pharrell. I don't know if you know Pharrell, but uh, Pharrell, he went to New York University and he went to go listen to uh, the music of aspiring musicians who were students at NYU. And he listens to this, uh, this track by this uh, woman named Maggie Rogers. And he said later, um, he was so deeply moved because he had never heard anything like that his entire life. And just to, like, the reason I love that clip so much is like the expression on his face as he's listening to this song, like, even the tears that literally go down his face. I actually want to show you a picture of this. Look at Pharrell being moved. Isn't that like, that's moving right there in itself. It was just like, man, that's what happens when we encounter something that's truly unique and and kind of unlike anything else. It's just so astoundingly rare. Now, the reason I say all this is because really this morning what we're going to talk about is what makes Christianity unique, what makes Christianity unlike any other worldview or belief system or religion. Uh, I know that it's pretty popular in our culture to say, oh, all religions are basically the same. They're all kind of slightly differentiated paths, kind of one larger truth overarching all of it. And uh, even it's really popular to say, you know, like uh, uh, from a distance, all religions seem very, very different, but you study them up close and uh, they're actually quite the same. They give moral principles for how to be a slightly better person or to encounter the divine. Um, I hear that. I know it's a very popular thing to say, but I actually, here's what I actually believe. I believe the opposite is true. I believe that actually from a distance, it seems like all religions are the same. It seems kind of like they all have moral principles and how to 
love the poor and things like that. But then you get up close, and they're actually uh, very, very different from one another. And Christianity in particular, and really what differentiates Christianity from all other belief systems or worldviews, is it's not a religion in the traditional sense. It's not, first and foremost, a collection of principles for how you should live a more moral life. That might be a byproduct of it, but at the heart of Christianity, what differentiates it from everything else is what we're going to study this morning, the resurrection. Uh, All other belief systems and world religions have a founder. Uh, They all have a founder who died. Uh, Christianity alone makes the truth claim that uh, Jesus didn't just live, he didn't just die, but he got back up again. And and there's significant implications of that that we're going to talk about. But most significantly, right off the bat, what you see is the work of Jesus is unlike the work that any other religion is meant to produce. Other world religions and other belief systems are really about making bad people good or really bad people slightly less really bad people. Christianity, it's not first and foremost about that. It's not about making bad people good. It's about bringing dead people to life. And we see a glimpse of the work that Jesus has come to do in those who might believe in his resurrection. And so we're going to see what makes Christianity very unique, uh, as well as what I'm hoping is you're not just like, huh, that's neat. Uh, But here's what I believe. I believe that really unique encounters are meant to produce really radical responses. Really unique encounters uh, are meant to produce really radical responses. And so I'm really hoping that it does more than just kind of interest you, uh, but it produces within many of you uh, a very kind of radical step of obedience and followership as well. So we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to see three particular kind of aspects of this passage as we we walk through this. Two weeks left in Mark. So the first thing we're going to see is just a unique truth uh, for our minds. That in the resurrection, what Christianity is offering us, what Mark is offering us, is a very unique truth uh, for our minds. Now, uh, look with me uh, at chapter 16, verse 1. Um, Let me just say this as well. This is going to be a longer point. And so just so you can kind of track where it is that I'm going here. We're going to have three subpoints, so I can help you kind of see some of the line of reasoning of what it is that we're walking through, okay? So as we talk about how Christianity is a unique truth for our minds, what I first want you to see is that uh, Mark is making an extraordinary claim, okay? He's making an extraordinary claim that Jesus literally, historically, actually, physically, in reality, resurrected from the grave. It wasn't symbolic. It wasn't a misunderstanding, It wasn't uh, a cover-up where his body was actually eaten by dogs and they had to give an explanation to what happened. I actually took a class in my undergraduate study saying that's what happened to Jesus. Mark is saying that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus actually resurrected from the grave. Now look at the detail he goes to in this. Look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. They might go and anoint Jesus. Now what we're seeing again is a unique uh, kind of devotion from these women to Jesus. That's really unlike the devotion of anybody else. The disciples are nowhere to be seen. And what we're seeing, particularly in verse one, let's do a little bit of the cultural bridge work, is a unique devotion in the fact that they are going to anoint Jesus's body with spices. Now, why would you do this? You would do this because, you know, you're in a Middle Eastern, very warm climate, uh, and spices, as a body decomposed and stank, uh, you would have spices to kind of serve as a perfuming agent uh, to cover up the stink. It was kind of an act of devotion and love uh, to make sure that body is well cared for. Now, what we see are two implications of this. The one is, again, a unique devotion from these women. Uh, It says spices, and I think here's the challenge is a lot of you think like spices, like King Supers, you go to the spice part of King Supers, 
and you get a salt shaker and a pepper shaker, and there they went. Like, there went the Marys and Salome, and, they, you know, they're a little each. Got their, it's like, no, 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 they're, they're not preparing a soup. You know that, right? They're preparing a body. So we're talking lots of spices, pounds of spices, very, very expensive. Spices back then, just like today, were an extraordinarily expensive thing. These were not women of means, and consequently, they could have very easily spent, this could have been the most expensive thing they ever bought in their entire life. Uh, very very uh, devoted to Jesus, even to the very end. The second thing that we see from these women is they do not think he's going to rise from the grave, okay? Uh, You do not kind of splurge your life savings to go prepare a corpse if you don't think it's going to be a corpse when you get there. You you follow my drift? And so with that then, what we're seeing is Mark is giving us a really interesting detail uh, that, you know, back then it wasn't people like, oh yeah, no big deal, Jesus didn't rise from the, or Jesus rose from the grave. No, it's like actually even the most devoted people the uniquely devoted people struggled to believe that Jesus would actually resurrect. Now, look at what happens when they get there. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So a very logical conversation for them to have. They're carrying these spices. They're going to prepare the body. Hey, there's a stone pre- preventing us from getting in the tomb. How will we get in there? But there's not a stone there. Now, look at this. Just so that there's no misunderstanding, and there's a lot of clarity in the claim being made here, uh, God sends a messenger basically to explain what it is that happened. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, which is very reasonable, right? You imagine if you showed up to a graveyard, and you walked into a tomb, and there wasn't a body there, but then there was another guy sort of sitting up and talking to you, you would be alarmed, okay? So it's a very rational thing for these women to feel. He said to them, do not be alarmed, which that would alarm me even more. Like, oh, and now we're talking. Okay, uh, that's the way this is happening. Uh, <laughs> you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And then look at this. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So again, I'm just trying to help you see the scriptures are very, very, very clear about what it is that they are claiming that Jesus historically, really, physically, literally, and all the other illies that I could add on to that, resurrected from the grave. That is the very outrageous claim that Mark is making here uh, in this text. Now, the, the second kind of part of this line of reasoning is Mark doesn't just make an outrageous claim, but Mark provides outrageous evidence. He provides uh, extensive evidence uh, in line with uh, this kind of uh, extraordinary claim that it is that he is making. Now, it's interesting because, again, sometimes it's portrayed like... Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about how uh, we kind of collectively struggle with something called chronological snobbery. Uh, that basically means that we look at people that live before us and we tend to think they're idiots and we're enlightened, but you understand there's people coming after us who will look at us and see us as complete idiots as well. You, you following me? And so it's very easy a lot of times to look at people back in the first century and be like, you know, people back then, they believed in anything. They believed in unicorns, and then they believed in leprechauns. And so, yeah, they would hear that like a guy would resurrect from the grave and it wouldn't be that big of a deal whatsoever. That's actually not right whatsoever. In fact, that's what's really helpful about Mark providing that detail, that here are these women uh, that, who are the most devoted people, and yet they still struggle to believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And so Mark, knowing this, and not calling you to something like blind faith in a particular way, like, like we don't believe that Christianity is a, a leap into the dark, we believe it's a small step into the light. And what, and what Mark is doing, knowing that he's making this very outrageous claim, is providing very extensive evidence to help you know uh, this really did happen. Now, 
Where do we see that? Well, this is a big reason why for the past few weeks, I've been pointing you to all the names, dates, specifics, eyewitness testimonies, everything. We've been building on this week after week after week. And even if you look at this again, you're getting specific people, specific names, specific locations, uh, specific days of the week where all of this is unfolding. Why? Because Mark is trying to help you see, uh, and particularly first century readers would have known this, and particularly first century readers who would have known this in that geographic location and been like, hey, I know those people. Like, I know those people. I can go ask them for myself. Did that really happen? Like, what Mark is writing is not a fairy tale that's trying to trick you into believing. Like, this is the stuff of first century historical reporting. That's the way that Mark is writing. In fact, uh, to come back to C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, one, was an atheist uh, into his adult life. Uh, as well as he was a professor of ancient literature at Oxford. And a lot of times people think that C.S. Lewis was a professor of Christianity or something like that. He was not uh, whatsoever. He actually thought like Christianity was his hobby or, or kind of like religious studies was his hobby. And he was actually like an expert at ancient literature. And Lewis actually said that the tipping point for him actually starting to believe the truthfulness of the claims of the gospel was the nature in which the gospel was written, that it was written unlike any other ancient literature and particularly unlike any other ancient literature and the details that it provides and that this was the stuff of real history. I'll read Lewis, uh, or let Lewis speak for himself. He says this. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life, and I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, uh, so that's kind of his British way of saying, like, this is the news. This is the first century news being delivered, and accurately, it's not like CNN or Fox News. It's the real news, okay, that uh, went on here. Sorry, I probably offended, like, a lot of you. So um, keep going. Uh, Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. Okay? So he just read this for himself and he was like, this is not the stuff of myth. This isn't like anything else that I've read in ancient literature in terms of the names, dates, locations. This is the stuff. This is the way history was reported uh, and written down in the first Century. We'll talk a lot more about this actually next week as well. Um, not only do we kind of see the internal claim uh, of kind of extensive evidence, but I think there's external affirmation of that internal claim as well. And I think particularly when you understand the history of what surrounds the type of claims that are being made in the scriptures as well. Now for me, my undergraduate degree is in history, which we joke all the time. Uh, if you major in history, you can't get a job, uh, but you, it is helpful when you're studying history. So I guess it's paying off uh, all those uh, loans and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, but it's interesting because historically speaking, let me, let me hit it from this angle. I hear the objection a lot uh, historically to Christianity that Jesus' movement is not very unique because there was a series of uh, other messianic movements uh, around that period of time. And if you really know the history, there's a bunch of other people who claim to be the Christ and there's a bunch of other people that claim to be God and there's a bunch of other people who claim to be God and they got a bunch of followers and, it, and Christianity was really not all that different. Now, in some ways, that objection to Christianity is actually true in the sense that there were uh, dozens upon dozens of messianic movements in, in the early uh, uh, first, second century and before then and after then as well. It would happen again and again and again. A guy would uh, rise up, he claimed to be God. A guy would rise up and claim to be an ambassador for God and he would get a ton of followers, a lot of times even more followers than Jesus got uh, that we saw in the gospel according to Mark. And he would rise up, but you know what would happen? Uh, this guy would get such a followership he would be a threat to the Roman authorities, and they would kill him. And then you know what happened? His movement would die out, and you would never hear of it unless you studied first century history, uh, which you're like, that doesn't sound like fun, so that's why I don't know about it. 
And that would happen again and again and again and again. A guy would rise up. He would get a bunch of followers. He would claim to speak for God. He would get killed. And then the following would totally dissipate. It would totally fade away. It would totally disappear. And yeah, what makes Christianity so unique is Christianity did not only survive following the death of its founder, but actually exploded exponentially after the death of its follower, after the, after the death of its founder. It exploded exponentially in nature. Like something happened. Christians, we, what we claim is that Jesus didn't just die. He got back up again. He started appearing to people that could see that for themselves. And as a consequence, there was such a certainty, there's such a veracity, there's such a, a conviction that this thing is really true. Christianity exploded to the point that within a matter of a couple hundred years, it pretty much overtook the Roman Empire who was killing anybody who, who, who called themselves a Christian. And now 2,000 years later, you are sitting on the other side of the globe of where this faith was founded, sitting in a room learning about it. Part of the most freely practiced world religion, and there is not a close second in comparison. What happened historically to lead to that happening unlike any other movement like its kind? What happened? I mean, I think you've got to, if you kind of think logically about this, and particularly if you're kind of exploring Christianity, you might have an objection to Christianity. I mean, that's fine. I'm glad you're here. I'm somebody who kind of started exploring this in adulthood as well. But I think, I mean, this was a real tipping point for me as well. I just don't know, historically speaking, what is an alternative explanation? You know, people throw out the alternative explanation of like, oh, you know, like it was just easy believism, right? People back then were just prone to believe anything. But we already saw, Mark is giving you the detail that even the most likely to believe, like, you know how the scene ends? They're scared and don't tell anybody because they still struggle to believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave. (laughs) Say it's a hoax, maybe. But here's the thing that we know experientially is that people tend to not die for hoaxes. People tend not to uh, hold to what is false, when they're being tortured. In fact, what we know is people actually deny what they know is true when they're tortured. And yet, all of these eyewitnesses, really down to the last one, are tortured and eventually murdered for their conviction and belief that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And a lot of them would have their lives spared. They just would have said, no, it didn't happen. But they were like, we can't deny what it is that we saw. So kill me, it's okay. I mean, I see what's going to happen to me anyways. I'm going to get back up from the grave because that's the one who's my God. Not the emperor, he's not my God. You say it's a hallucination, and I get why we say that in Colorado. We love our drugs in Colorado, right? But in spite of all our amazing progress with drugs, I still don't know, like, what is the drug that produces a mass shared hallucinatory experience amongst a ton of people in a diversity of geographic regions who all kind of say the exact same thing? I'm not sure what that is. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe you can tell me what that drug is. I just don't know what it is. And so all that's to say... Um, for me, you know, somebody who didn't really grow up around the faith, exploring the faith, kind of from a logical perspective as an adult, the reason that I'm a follower of Jesus is because I just believe it's the most logical place to arrive intellectually when you follow the evidence where it leads. I'm not trying to be presumptuous or unkind. and say, I just think if you're just kind of like lay down your presuppositions that this can't be true because it just can't be true, which is not a very logical argument, and you Follow the evidence where it leads. The most rational, logical, historical explanation is that Jesus actually resurrected from the grave. Now, not only that, but here's the third part of that implication. The third part of that, that Mark doesn't just make this extraordinary claim. He doesn't just offer extraordinary evidence, but there are extraordinary implications if, if this is really true. You know, I think sometimes it's easy for us to see the resurrection as not being any big deal. It's the reason why, like, we've tried to do entire series 
on the significance and the implications of the resurrection. But it's almost easy to look at the resurrection as kind of like this final magic trick by Jesus. It's like you went to a concert and the band stops. And you're like, one more song, one more song. And the band's like, okay, we'll play Freebird or whatever it is that you're like, whoever it is you're going to go see. Um, you know, almost Jesus is like doing the resurrection. And people are like, whoa, that was impressive. Okay, now we can all go home and isn't this fun? And no, like, you know what Jesus is doing in this moment? And he, he, he is showing that all his claims to unique authority, all his claims to actually be God, was actually true. It was actually true, right? Because like, who else creates life where there was once death other than God himself? Who else has the power to do that other than God himself? You know what he's showing you? He's showing you the unique privileges that come with you, with you being a follower of Jesus, or if you want to become a follower of Jesus, even today. Because what do we say is the heart of the gospel? Jesus in my place. Jesus takes everything bad about me upon himself at the cross, and he lavishes upon me the entire benefits of the performance that he lived out when he was blameless and without any sort of sin whatsoever. You know what that means? I am not only forgiven of my sin, but when I look at the resurrection, if I am in Christ, I'm getting a glimpse of my future. What he has done for me, his death is my death, his victory is my victory, and I don't have the giftedness or the education level or the power within myself to conquer death. I don't. Neither do any of you. But Jesus Christ does. And the heart of the gospel is not about what you first do, but receiving and believing what Jesus has done for you. I mean, we could just go on and on. Uh, but gosh, like the unique privileges that are offered through this claim is just astounding uh, as well. So with that then, we see this extraordinary uh, truth for our minds. Now let's go to the next part of the passage where we'll see uh, an extor- extraordinary uh, grace for our hearts. We're not just thinking beings, we're, we're feeling, we're emotional beings as well, and that's significant. And I actually think the most beautiful part of this entire passage is not uh, that Christianity is logical, although I think it is, and I think that's very significant. I think it's what is said next uh, in verses 7 through 8. Now, uh, I'm going to tackle verse 8 next week in its entirety, um, and so I'm not going to hit it now, I'll just read it to you because it's part of this passage, um, but we're going to focus on verse 7. Uh, but go... Verse 7, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love verse 8. Very, very unexpected. But look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I think verse 7 is so beautifully powerful for a couple of reasons. Now, let's take a step back. This is the reason we teach through books of the Bible so you can see the entirety of the context leading up to this. Um, Have you ever been betrayed? You ever been stabbed in the back? You ever had somebody profess their undying love to you and then be like, Oh, I know I said that last week, but we're not dating anymore. What? Like what? Uh, what, what well, you know, that is the most painful thing I think. I mean, it's, it's not a competition, but that is one of the most painful things that can ever happen to us. Now, I want you to put yourself in that scenario, and I want you to imagine that you are sending a messenger to that person that has betrayed you. Now, instantly, ninety percent of you in the room are like, "I ain't sending any messenger to that person because they're dead to me," right? <laughs> the other ten percent of you. If, if you have enough grace to just send a messenger, what type of message do you think you're sending? It's probably something along the lines of, you tell that idiot who backstabbed me and ruined my life, if he's really sorry, he can meet with me at the Starbucks downtown. I'm not telling him which one. He has to guess. And, and, 
and he has to crawl the entire way on his knees. And if he'll do enough stuff, I might entertain the thought of not murdering him, right? Like, that's the way that we tend to treat people who wrong us. I think it's actually a bit logical because it stems from a conviction or a belief that when a relationship is broken, some sort of payment has to be made in order to heal the nature of that broken relationship. Here's what's astounding to me. It's the remarkable kindness of Jesus towards the men who betrayed him. Like, look at this message. It's just like, hey, go to Galilee. The plan is still on. What? Now I'm really getting goosebumps, and it's not because I'm cold. The plan is still on. What? Unless you think that what Jesus is saying here is, oh, and it's not, no big deal that you guys like contributed to my murder. That's not, that's not what's being communicated here. Jesus knows also payment has to be made to heal a broken relationship, between, particularly a broken relationship between finite human beings and an infinite perfect God. But the payment has been made. The work of the cross has been done. He has cried out, it is finished. And as a consequence, the plan is on and the relationship is restored and they continue to walk alongside Jesus as well. It's beautiful. But you know what's even more beautiful? Is what does he say in verse seven? But go, tell his disciples and who else? And Peter. Now, why would Jesus have a specific kind of word for Peter? Well, you know, some people, particularly if you might come from like a Catholic background, might be like, oh, well, you know, like Peter was uniquely important, uniquely significant. He was the rock upon which the, the church is found, all this sort of stuff. That's like, that's not what's going on here, okay? You know why Jesus specifically asked for Peter? Because Peter was the one who specifically screwed up the worst. That's why. I mean, you can imagine exactly how this would go down where like the disciples would be maybe sharing a meal or something like that and they don't know that Jesus is resurrected from the grave and they're all kind of lamenting and man, we really messed up. And they're looking at Peter, but like we messed up, but that dude really messed up, right? Like Peter's the guy who is like sitting across a dinner table from Jesus and is like, Man, I'm with you to the very end, even if it costs me my very life. And then like 15 minutes later, a little girl's like, do you know Jesus? He's like, I've never heard of Jesus in my entire life. Peace, I'm out of here, see ya, gone. And you just imagine the shame and the guilt and the regret that Peter must have felt. And then particularly that manifested and multiplied when a messenger shows up to him and the other disciples and is like, hey, Jesus is alive. And probably all the other disciples are a little bit like, oh, crap. Like, is he going to kill us? Like, what is going to happen? And it's like, no, he asked for you. He asked for you guys. The plan is still on. And you can imagine Peter responding to that and being like, you guys go. You guys go. Like, I'm not, like, a disciple. Like, he's asking for the disciples. The disciple's a follower. I'm the last thing, a follower. Can you imagine the joy that melted his heart when he hears the words, Peter, Jesus asked specifically for you. Can you imagine that? It's like such good news because it's like, let me just say this. It's like some of you think you're too bad for the gospel and this is what the God of grace does. And he goes specifically after the worst of the worst. It's what makes Christianity unlike everything. I mean, like, gosh, this unique grace. It's like every other person in every other religious system all functions the same. If you do enough, if you perform, if you put your best foot forward, You'll be loved, you'll be accepted, you'll be promoted, you'll be taken care of. You see this in world religions, it's like, here's the list of rules, obey the rules, and God will take care of you. Some of you think that's what Christianity is, it's not, it's the opposite of that. That's what you're seeing here in this particular scene. And man, and 
overflow of that then is the way that people treat us as well. Where it's like a lot of you have not only been betrayed, but why have you been betrayed? Why have you been abandoned? Because in the moment where you reveal just a sliver of your brokenness, in a moment where it's like he finally saw you without makeup on, in the moment where in this uber-competitive, like cutthroat work environment where everybody's trying to reach the top even though everybody has plenty of money. Like, you made a mistake <laughs> and, and your boss used that as justification to fire you or to dock your pay. It's like we're used to like, man, if you see not just the worst of me, if you just see anything wrong about me whatsoever, you will abandon me, which is why we are so dead set on projecting an image of ourselves that's far different than what exists in reality. And here is what makes Christianity, unlike any other belief system, like any, unlike any other religion, unlike the way anybody else will treat us, because Jesus Christ, when he saw the worst in you, did not run away from you, but actually went to the cross to die for you, to forgive you and to, and to rise for you so that you might have a victory that you never had the power to earn on your own merit. And that's what is happening here in this scene. And it's unique grace. I mean, it is grace unlike anything else that'll be offered to you. Man, people don't treat us this way. Our employer doesn't treat us this way. Other world religions don't treat us this way. Jesus alone treats us this way. And what I believe is Christianity isn't only true and you should believe it because it's true. I think you should believe in Christianity because you want it to be true. We long for somebody to treat us in this way because we experience the pain and the heartbreak with any other alternative. Now, all that to say, you know, we talked about kind of this unique truth for our minds and the unique grace for our hearts. All this, I think, is meant to produce within you then a unique response with your lives. Now, let me, let me kind of uh, be transparent about maybe the presupposition that I'm, I'm carrying into this. Um, I think on the whole, we in Denver are pretty reserved people. Um, you know, like, we're just not super expressive a lot of times uh, until until we encounter something truly unique and truly beautiful. Now, let me just give you an example. Uh, when the Broncos won the Super Bowl, this city, full of highly reserved, highly respected, you know, it's like, you sit here in church, and I make a point that I think is pretty good, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, like, that's, a, that's kind of the, the extent of, like, your emotional response, which, you know, it's cool. We're working on it. Uh, but, but it's like, the Broncos won the Super Bowl, and that is such a uniquely powerful experience the city went ballistic, right? A lot of you went ballistic. Did anybody go downtown uh, as soon as the Broncos won the Super Bowl? Anybody? Okay, so like a, a few of you did. I went downtown. I packed my wife and my two-year-old into our Subaru, and we drove into downtown. We live in downtown, but we drove the 10 blocks onto six, into 16th Street Mall, and it was pandemonium. People are running around and screaming, and it's like freezing outside. People are running around without shirts on, and they're going crazy, and horns are blaring. I got stopped at the intersection of 16th and uh, I think it was Champa, and uh, I'm sitting there. I actually, this happened. I'm not making this up. You can actually go to my Instagram profile and see this. Um, I'm sitting there, and a guy runs off the 16th Street Mall and jumps onto the hood of my car. <laughs> like, seriously, he jumps on the hood of my car. And he's just screaming and going crazy. Ah, we won, we won, we won. And, uh, and you know what I did? I, I didn't yell at him to get off. I didn't call the police. I rolled down my window to try to give him a high five because I was also so excited about the fact that the Broncos won the Super Bowl. The crazy thing about all of it is that none of us did anything to earn it, right? 
Like, I didn't throw a pass. I didn't throw a block. I wasn't even in the state of California when we won the Super Bowl. None of you were either. Unless there's somebody here I didn't know was here. Like, I, I just... And here's kind of my crazy belief, is that the work of Jesus on the cross, the victory secured through the gospel, is the true and better Super Bowl for us who are Denverites. Is that a, is that a crazy view? I don't, I don't think it should be. Yeah, yeah. I think, and so I think, I, I think then that the gospel should produce within you a radical whole life response. The reason we exist as a church is to do that. Like We exist to help people believe in Jesus and start seeing the entirety of their lives through the following of Jesus. And I mean the entirety of your life. I'm talking the hard stuff like sex and money and work and where you live and safety. Everything, everything. Because it's that profoundly radical. But here's what I want to do. I want to push some of you to take one very specific radical step uh, this morning. And that is through making the decision to get baptized. Now, if you haven't been baptized, here's what we believe as a church. We believe that uh, the New Testament teaches you should be baptized by immersion. The reason we believe that is because the word baptize is a Greek word, uh, baptizo, that actually means to immerse. I know that's crazy, but yes, that's what it means. It means to immerse. And we believe it's meant to happen after you become a follower of Jesus because it's a physical sign proclaiming a spiritual reality that this is what it is that Jesus Christ has done for my life. His death is my death. His victory is my victory. And I proclaim that publicly that I receive that and believe that. And I, just like I did in the last gathering, I want to challenge those of you who have not been baptized in that way, and it might be that you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, it might be that you may make the decision to become a follower of Jesus today, to get baptized today. Now, it's easy, uh, and I feel like I do this sometimes. Uh, every once in a while, I feel like we do this, and we do this maybe twice a year or something like that. And what I kind of respond with is like uh, a list of reasons why it's not that big of a deal. Like, oh, we have clothes provided, and your friend won't, you know, leave you here because you're getting changed in the bathroom or something like that, your friend that you came with. And, you know, I know that you had plans to go to snooze and the line will be crazy. And it's like, okay, here's the thing. I don't want to calm your fears at all. I don't want to lower your expectations at all. I don't want to make it seem easy at all. It's not supposed to be easy. It's meant to be radical. It's meant to be extreme. It's meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to be violent. That's the reason we baptize in the way that we do, because we believe it's the only natural response to the radical love that Jesus Christ has extended to us in the gospel. And so I'm not going to give you a bunch of logistics. We got them covered, okay? If that's helpful, we have them covered. There's other people that are already getting baptized. Man, I don't want to talk you into it. I want you to see and taste and marvel at this unique truth of Christianity, this unique grace extended to you in Christianity, and say, you know what? I'm not going to look at that and respond with, huh, that's interesting. I might think about that some more. I want you to respond with, all right, I don't have all my questions answered, but I have the most important question answered, that Jesus Christ lived for me and died for me and resurrected for me. Now I want to proclaim that I believe that through getting baptized And so I'll I'll kind of walk you through next steps, but we had some people do it in the last gathering. I want to push you guys to do this again. Let's take a step of faith. Let's ask God, the Holy Spirit, to move and to really, uh, yeah, I want some of you who need to get baptized to get baptized. So we'll walk you through next steps, but I want to pray for you, and uh, yeah, we'll take it from there. God, we thank you so much for who you are and uh, for what it is that you've done, and um, pray, God, the Holy Spirit, that you would 
move um, in the lives of the men and women in this room. And regardless of all the diversity of our stories and experiences that there would be produced within us universally, a a treasuring of Jesus above all else, uh, a tasting and seeing this gospel is true, and it really can become the thing that I live my entire life in response to and my entire life for. I pray that there would be men and women who really would even believe that for the very first time, um, or even people who have been struggling to believe that for some time, who would reclaim what they know is true and are struggling to believe is true. Oh, gosh, and there would just be a, a, a radical response from our community to, to who Jesus is and what it is that he's, uh, he's done. And so, God, I pray that you would move, uh, stir up courage within those who need courage. And uh, we just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.